It can feel pretty awkward when we get singled out for something or we feel like we've been unfairly like put the spotlight on us or been busted for something that we feel like, hey, what about them? What about these other people? We were coming down I-75, my brother and I, one time, and you know, that dreaded feeling you get in your heart, even though you're, you, if you've driven I-75, which I'm sure most of you have, like everybody's going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, right? And you're just hanging with the, the group just to survive. And so you're going through there, and we pass the police officer radaring there beside the road, and, you know, your heart just drops. And, and we see him, like, jump in his car, and he pulls, he's pulling up with the lights on, and then he pulls over somebody about three cars behind us. You know, sense of relief, oh, not us. Well, then we see the car, two cars behind us get pulled over, and we keep going, but that guy pulls to the side. Then he pulls over somebody else, and we're thinking, are we all for this? Is he going to get us too? And then he pulls up literally right beside of us, and he points right at us and tell, pull over, right? So he gets like four of us right in a row. And even though we obviously knew we were speeding, my first reaction, my brother's first reaction he was driving was, what about those guys in front of us, right? You got the ones behind. What about them? We're just staying with the traffic, right? So that's our natural reaction, Another time, I was at a basketball game in college. I had to say that in college. This wasn't last week or anything, but um, some of you know what I, how, how loud I can be toward referees in, in games. But uh, um, we were in the stands, a bunch of us, college students yelling, you know, riding the referee, which when you're that age, you think, you know, that's fun, except if you're the referee, I'm sure it's not fun. But we're, we're yelling and screaming at every call and uh, contesting every call that he makes. And he runs by the area where I'm at in the bleachers, and he stops. And I thought, this should be fine. But then he, he points, like, right at me, okay, right in the group of people. He points at me, and he says, shut your mouth, right? Shut your mouth. And he singles me out. So instead of saying, man, I shouldn't have done that, I, I got this feeling over me, like, I'm just, like, among, like, 100 people here, and we're all yelling, right? Am I getting picked on because I have the loudest voice, right? So none of us like that. We, we always want to point fingers and say, what about them, even though we know that we're responsible for what happens. And in today's text, our last text in the book of John, Jesus drops some really difficult news on Peter, and Peter reacts and pretty much says, look, what about, what about John? What about, what about everybody else? What, why are you picking on me, Jesus, about this? And Jesus says, hold on, Peter. I'm talking to you, buddy. This is about you. This is not about John. This is not about anybody else. And so today, as we look at John chapter 21, verses 18 through 25, here's what we need to do. We need to understand in the context of this scripture, Jesus is talking to Peter, but the Holy Spirit today is talking to us. And the Holy Spirit wants to get our attention through this whole gospel of John, through his word and through this passage, what he wants to say to us. So Please tune out everyone else, tune out the distractions around you, tune out all the things you have to do this day, and really allow the Word to speak to you. So let's pray, and we'll look at chapter 21, the last verses of the Gospel of John. Father God, we thank you for your Word that gives us life and truth, that your promises are good, and, and God, they represent your heart and who you are. And God, I pray that you will allow us to trust you, and God, I pray that today we will Listen, not for our neighbor, not for our spouse, but we will listen for ourselves, God, knowing that you have truth uh, for us that can truly change the trajectory of our life, that we can be a greater influence for you and bring more glory to you through our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're going to look at 18 through 25, but I want to start at 25, the last verse, and then we'll go back to 18. So John adds this at the end of his gospel. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so even if you've only been here for a handful of these sermons on the Gospel of John, if you're newer to us, it's really easy to identify that the Gospel of John is all about Jesus, right? I mean, this whole Gospel is centered on the life of Christ. In fact, all the Gospels are centered on the life of Christ, and the whole Bible is centered on Christ. But in this Gospel in particular, John is saying, look, Jesus did a lot of other things. He said a lot of other things. He taught a lot of other things that have not been recorded. I'm recording for you here in the highlight reel, right? This is the highlight reel of what Jesus did and what Jesus said and Jesus accomplished. Now, when you look at that last phrase, you know, the world cannot contain the volumes. What's John talking about there? Well, there's a couple different opinions on what that could be. One, if you think, go all the way back to the beginning of John and think about how John began. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. We think about Jesus and his internality and, and his deity, who he was. He was God from the beginning. And so some would say, like John's talking about Jesus, eternal Jesus. If you told everything about Jesus, no way the world could hold all the volumes that were written about him because he's always existed. So John from the beginning pointed us to Jesus and his person as God from the beginning. Some think that John is saying that books can never really tell everything there is to tell about Jesus. That Jesus was so amazing, so special, and so great that the written uh, recording doesn't necessarily do justice to what he saw and what he uh, gazed on with his eyes and encountered with his hands. That's one uh, opinion. And then the one that I would fall on, I really believe John's using exaggeration to make the point that he had to be selective in the things that he saw in Jesus' life. And he's saying, look, there was so much more, right? You're just getting a little bit of the greatness of Jesus Christ. What we saw and what we encountered with Jesus was truly, truly amazing. And so Jesus is the center of this gospel. Jesus' life was amazing. It's all about Jesus. But if you had to pick a person or two from this gospel account, from John's gospel, as the most prevalent supporting actors to Jesus, it would definitely be Peter and John. If you've tracked with this, Peter and John have been very instrumental in Jesus' life, in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Peter and John played important roles at the Last Supper. We saw that in the Garden of Gethsemane. They played an important role at Jesus' arrest and trial. They were very much in view, their, their perspective, and in the resurrection accounts, we've seen that they were strong supporting actors. So they've been tracking together, Peter and John, John being the author of this book, together throughout this book. Well, now Jesus is going to show in today's text that their paths began to diverge, right? And they are ultimately go in completely different directions. So let me remind you real quickly where we're at in chapter 21 in case you missed the last few weeks or just need a reminder because it's been a long week, right? So Jesus has risen from the dead and he's made several appearances to groups of people and to some individuals. And possibly intermittently, he's been on the earth 
for approximately 40 days following his resurrection. He ascends to heaven about 40 days after. So he's on earth, and he's met with the disciples, and he's been very clear and very specific on the job he has for them to do. He says, just like the Father sent me here for a mission, now I'm sending you out for this mission. We saw that in the last chapter. But we also saw at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 21, that what's Peter doing? We saw this. He went fishing, right? His old occupation, he was a fisherman. Jesus called him as a disciple, and he called him out of fishing. And yet Peter goes back with five other disciples, including John. And here they are. We find them fishing. Well, Jesus shows up as they're out fishing. He shows up on the beach. He makes them breakfast. He performs one last miracle. And they come in and gather around him. They have breakfast with him. And then he pulls Peter aside, the text we saw last week, and they go for a walk down the beach. Now, if you recall, Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times during Jesus' trial. And we said last week that it seems like from Peter's de- uh, his demeanor, but then things that are said in the text, that Peter feels like he's possibly disqualified from future ministry due to this colossal and huge failure that he had. But three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me to parallel Peter's earlier three denials. And Peter confirms his love for Jesus. He said, Jesus, you know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus tells Peter that, in fact, he has not given up on him. In spite of his failures, he's not given up on Peter. And in fact, he has this huge job for him to do. He says, feed my sheep. He says, shepherd my people. Give my people the word. And so what Jesus says next in our text today in verse 18 really gets Peter's attention. So not only feed my sheep, Peter, but he says in verse 18, truly, truly, Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What's Jesus talking about here? Jesus' prediction is of being dressed and led with outstretched hands is Poetic foreshadowing, pointing ahead, predicting Peter's future death and his future death by all things, which will be crucifixion. He's pointing to Peter. He's saying, Peter, not only are you going to feed my sheep and pastor my people and play a critical role in the future of my church when I ascend to heaven, but Peter, you're going to die as a martyr for me. And the phrase, stretch out your hands, was a common way during that time to refer to crucifixion. So, while we may, this may seem very uh, like hard to understand for us, it was very clear to Peter that this was what, Peter, that what Jesus was talking about. But John, for the reader, clarifies what Jesus has just said in his prediction in verse 19. Look at this little parenthetical phrase that John adds. He says, this John, uh, that Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So I don't know about you, There's things I would really love to know about my future, right? I'd love to know what stocks to buy. I would love to know, you know, some of you wish you knew the lottery number last night, right? There's things in the future that I would very much like to know, but I don't think knowing the details of my death would be one of those. And just like that would be difficult for us to have to know and to be prepared for earlier in life, I'm sure Peter the same way that he's a little shocked by what Jesus just told him. Peter you saw me die, and you saw the harshness and the difficulty and the pain that I went through. Well, Peter, you're going to be dying by the same means. 
But you know, one thing that you may not catch from this text that is encouraging to Peter in hearing this, even though the text doesn't point this out, that what does this prediction say to Peter? It says to Peter, buddy, you're going to stay faithful to the end, right? You've had this failure. You had these denials. You ran when you should have stayed strong and, and, and been there beside me. But Peter, you're going to be martyred for me. But you know what? That tells you, Peter, that you will stay faithful throughout the years until you die for me on a cross. So what an encouragement to Peter that even in spite of the fact that he's getting this really rough to hear noise, uh, uh, information and hearing this from Jesus, Jesus is saying, look, you're going to do better, right? You're going to do a lot better. And look at verse 19 again. And after saying these things to Peter, he says what? Follow me, right? So Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. It's the worst kind of death you can possibly have. Follow me. Follow me to the cross. Follow me to your own death. Yes, follow me and feed my sheep. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be crazy what I do through your life. But lead my church Follow me, and then you're going to stretch out your hands, and you're going to die like I did. And you know what? Church history, we don't have this recorded in the Scriptures, but church history definitely affirms that Peter died by crucifixion. But you want to hear an interesting twist to that? Peter, at that point in his life, when he matured in his faith, and he grew in his faith, when they came to him and said, we're going to crucify you, he said, please don't crucify me the way that Jesus was crucified. I want to be crucified upside down because I am not worthy to be crucified like my Jesus. How awesome is that, right? Peter, a guy who we've seen who's failed so much, recognizes his great inferiority to Jesus and that he was, un, uh, he was unworthy to die in the same manner. And it's great watching Peter throughout this gospel. You know, just Jesus has been the center of it all. We know that. But Peter's life is one that we can relate to and identify with so much. And there's hope for us because of Peter, right? He opened his mouth in the most inappropriate times. Me, right? You, probably a lot too. He said the most outlandish things sometimes. Been guilty of that one. One minute he's promising undying devotion to Jesus, and then the next he's standing in a courtyard and he's swearing he's never even heard of Jesus Christ. Can you relate? Can you think about your own life, that times when you've been like so fired up for Jesus and then you get around people and you're like, your actions just say like you don't even know Jesus. You're just blending in. You don't want to stand out. But despite Peter's overzealousness and his impulsiveness, he truly did love Jesus and that showed he stayed faithful to the end and he didn't have educational credentials. He wasn't some guy who came from a family of wealth. He's just a normal guy when Jesus said, follow me, and he said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, and it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to always look great, but I love you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to put my life in your hands, Jesus, and Jesus knows Peter's future. He knows that Peter will stay faithful to the end, and we talked about this last week. The reason why Peter can stay faithful to the end is because, as Mitch mentioned from last week, Jesus is faithful to us. Jesus is committed to his children. Jesus does not abandon his kids, right? And I, I think about verses like Romans 5.1, and I've been reading in Romans, and just this is just an incredible book, but Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been, past tense, right? 
We have been made right in God's sight by faith. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. For us. Not what we do for Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus Christ did for us. Yes, faith is our response to that. Faith is the instrument in which God uses to unite us to himself. And and when he calls us, our response is faith. And we receive all the blessings that are ours that God has bought for us in Christ. But it's the work of Jesus Christ, what God did for us through the death of Christ in the cross. It's not by our works. It's not by our efforts. We're made right with God. We have peace with God, Paul says. So God doesn't abandon his children. Peter failed, but God was faithful. And one day soon, Peter will be able to look at his enemies in the face and say, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to die like Jesus. So yes, Peter is definitely a work in progress, just like all of us. So if you're struggling here today, do you believe that you have peace with God? If this weekend wasn't one of the best weekends of your life spiritually, right? You're thinking back over the the weekend, you're thinking about some of the choices you made, some of the decisions you did, some of the things you said, and you think, well, you know, I, I do love Jesus, but boy, my actions sure didn't really reflect that this last weekend or the last month or the last year even. Know that God is working and he's not abandoning you. And just like Peter, God is going to keep after you. And then for all people to write what I'm about to read in 2 Peter, Peter is able to get to the point where he writes these words. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I encourage you to go back and read this whole chapter, but I'm just going to pick two verses. It says, God's divine power has granted us, that's believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. How amazing is that? Paul, Peter says, Jesus has given you everything you need to live this life. This is not something new that you need to go grab hold of or add on to. He said he's given you everything you need. Let me illustrate this for you real quick. Uh, So I I told you my daughter gave birth yesterday, and so we're sitting in the waiting room many, many hours, and I'm in there with my son-in-law's dad, and he's telling me he he just bought this new Tesla, all right? So he's describing this Tesla, Tesla. He actually gave me a ride in the Tesla, pretty cool, amazing vehicle, but I was... Uh, kind of shocked to learn this, okay? So the car comes with capabilities that are not unlocked. So particularly, this car can accelerate even faster than it does. And he says, it accelerates pretty fast. It, it can accelerate even faster than it does, and it has these other features that are there. So the nuts and the bolts, all the stuff are there in the car for it to do these things, but the CPU... The computer has to be told, okay, let these things go, right? Release these things. Of course, they charge you to do that, right? So so this is kind of a great illustration, imperfectly, of the Christian life. Many of you are so focused in on what you bring to the table 
your actions, your work, whether I'm checking off the list, whether I'm doing the things to measure up, that the focus is all upon yourself. And Peter tells us that Jesus has given us everything we need. And it's your CPU right here that needs to begin to believe that. That you need to understand that God, through the cross of Christ, has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Yet we live our lives like paupers, like poor people, when we have all the riches of Christ already there. Ephesians 1, we've already been seated with Christ in the heavenly places spiritually. So you have everything you need for life and godliness that's been accomplished in Christ. Who you are in Christ, our connection with Christ, our union with Christ. If you are a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's all there. You don't need something new. And so as God's word reveals more and more truth to you, the Holy Spirit says to you, engage, react, take on that truth. Allow that truth to become real in your life. This is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. Now be who you are. Live out who you are. So if you're a newer believer, as you read the word and you come across the very great and precious promises that Peter points out here at, in 2 Peter chapter 1, these things, you read these in a way that means so much more to you than they do somebody who's not a believer, be you before you were a believer, because you realize these are very great and precious promises. This gives me knowledge of Jesus Christ, and I understand who I am in him, and I can live my life in a way that has great power, because he's given me everything that I need. And we respond in faith, just like we came to Jesus by faith, right? When we came to Jesus, think about your salvation. Think about like Russell, he, a few weeks ago, he came to his understanding that he needed a Savior. What did he do to earn that? Did he have to do some works? Did he have to climb some steps? Did he crawl a certain distance? No. He came to the point where he said, I need Jesus. Like, I, I can't measure up to God's standard of holiness. I need a Savior. That's why Jesus died for me. And he showed that through his baptism today. He came to Jesus by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the same way that we live the Christian life. That Jesus is our Savior. He's in us. He's for us. The Holy Spirit's in us to guide us. And so by faith, we believe in the precious and great promises, and we react to that through the power of the Holy Spirit leading us, and we become who we are already by grace through faith. And so God is revealing himself more and more to you. So how can we understand that we can escape, as Peter said, from the corruption that is in this world through our sinful desires? Because we know, think about your life, you know that you have competing desires, right? You know that there's things that you delight in that are not good, right? You know that um, there's times when you make decisions because you feel like if I delight in this, it's going to make me feel really fulfilled and, and I'm going to find really great identity there. But it, as a believer, there, there's no ultimately no good that comes out of that. But it's still a fact that we have to learn that the superior satisfaction that is, comes from God is so much better than any of these things that we run to for our satisfaction. And I love how John Piper, he sums this up just in, in one great little quote. He says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in Christ. All right, let this sink in. Let me read that again. Keep it up there for a second. I know of no other way to triumph or get victory over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a 
superior satisfaction in Jesus Christ. And so as Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, as he tells us that we delight in Jesus, we grow in our knowledge of Jesus, and as we do that, these other things just lose their, their, their goodness, their taste. Their, they just aren't what they used to be to us. And over time, we understand more and more that Jesus is our choice, and sin leaves a bad taste in our mouth. And what once tasted good to us now disappoints. And we begin to realize, that is, I don't need that. I don't need to make that choice or look at that or do that. I need Jesus. And through my satisfaction to him, then his word comes to life and his promises come to life because all that he's accomplished. So if you've been born again, again, I'm going to say it, you don't need anything new to do what God wants you to do today. You don't need anything new to fulfill the calling that he's put on your life today. He gives you as my, the guy I love to read, Paul Tripp uses this a lot. He says, form-fitted grace. He gives us form-fitted grace for this day. Not grace for tomorrow. He gives us grace for today. And tomorrow he'll supply the grace you need for the challenges that are tomorrow. And so can you walk out of here today knowing that God's saying, look, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. You have everything you need to live a life that's godly and holy because Jesus lives within you and you have these very great and precious promises. One more illustration, then we'll move back to the text. Michelle loves to have a little garden in our backyard. Every summer she plants, spring she plants a garden. We have tomatoes and things like that, cucumbers. And the thing that she is turning out so well this year is our, our little tomatoes. And the tomatoes, you know, they may be small and they may look imperfect at times, but man, the taste of them, you know, are so, so superior to anything else. But you know what? There's nothing that a tomato can do to become more tomatoey, right? It, it, it can't do anything to make itself more of a tomato. What does it do? It just is attached to the vine. It's attached, and, and, and as water and sunshine come, it just grows and becomes what it is to its core nature, a tomato, right? It, it, it grows into what it is. And so in Christ, you are a new creation, and Christ is working in you to display all that he is through you. And so, yes, imperfect, but God is working to display himself through you for his glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're connected to the vine and that he is going to bring growth, stability, godliness, and maturity into your life? So let's go back to our text. So Jesus drops his bomb on Peter. He says, you're going to die as a martyr. How does Peter react initially here? Look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, following behind them, the one who had also had leaned back against him. That's how we know it's John during the supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Right? So John is apparently following Jesus and Peter down the beach, right? We don't know why he's following, but he's following. And if we remember when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? We know that Peter really truly believes that Jesus' prediction is true because Peter says, Jesus, we know you know everything, right? So Peter really knows that he's going to be a martyr and he's going to die. But So in this moment, I'm sure there's a sense of shock by what Jesus said, but he takes his eyes off Jesus. He's walking beside Jesus. He turns and he looks back 
and he sees John, and instead of saying, Jesus, I'm eager to do whatever and go to the cross and die for you, he says, what about, what about John, right? What about this man? Jesus, is this fair? Am I going to die? And John, maybe he's not. Is he concerned about fairness? Is he just curious? Like, Jesus, tell me what's going to happen to the rest of these guys. We don't know exactly his motivation, but we know how Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, it is my will that he, if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you, buddy? What's that to you? You follow me. So he says, don't be concerned about John. John is not your problem. John is not your business. That's my business, Peter. So take your eyes, turn them back around here, put them on me, not on John. You follow me. You follow me. Can we do that? Can we allow God to say, this is my specific will and path for your life? And instead of you saying, but it's not fair because it's easier for them. Or what about them? They have more, or they seem smarter, or they have it more together, or God, you gifted them with more. And we begin to ask questions, and rather than allowing the word of Christ to fill our, us up and to fill our minds, we take our mental energy and we focus it on other people. Not on loving them, but on comparing ourselves to them or critiquing them. We're all really good at doing that. And so instead of saying, making a list in our mind, he has or she has all of this, but I don't, we turn and we look at Jesus and we hear Jesus saying, hey, eyes here, eyes here, Peter, talking to you, buddy, talking to you. Now, Jesus clears up some misunderstanding in verse 23 that came about as a result of these words. Remember that these things were passed by oral tradition until they were written down, and so it was later on in John's life when he recorded this, but apparently there was this commonly held belief that Jesus had predicted that John would not die until Jesus returned. But look what Jesus says, or John tells us. He says, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. So John, they thought he wasn't going to die before Jesus came back. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he did, was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so John clears that up for us. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus isn't saying that John would remain alive until the second coming, and this got twisted somewhere along the way. But whatever, he's saying, whatever my specific will is for John, that's my business. That doesn't concern you. And then in verse 24, we close out the book with verse 24 and 25. We already read, but this statement of authenticity. John affirms that this gospel that he recorded right here that we're reading today is an accurate eyewitness of Jesus Christ. This is, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John saying, I saw this with my own eyes. I'm taking the pen and I'm putting it down on parchment because I saw it. I saw Jesus and there's so much more that I could write, but there's not volumes to hold it all. It's just too much. Here's the highlight reel of it all. And John records this and he tells us clearly why. Back in chapter 20, 20 he says, so that you can believe. I'm telling you this because I want you to believe in Jesus. 
I want you to believe my eyewitness testimony that Jesus is amazing and he's great. I ran across this quote by C.S. Lewis this week. I'd never, ever heard, and I thought it was so amazing. It says, Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Let me say that again. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted, but now your moods are changing. You may be questioning that, is what he's saying. And I think there's no better way to close out this gospel account than to think about this eyewitness testimony that John has given us. Because some of you, your struggle may be at one point you did accept this with faith, and now you're struggling. You're beginning to like question the historicity of, of, of the Gospels. Maybe you're questioning, like, is this really the truth? Is there really more out there? Is, is Jesus really, you know, can we trust this accurate record? And C.S. Lewis is saying, faith is holding on to what you once knew was true in spite of your moods changing, because our moods are good at changing, right? Day-to-day, the, the struggles and things that happen to us can really affect us. In fact, the number one reason people turn from Jesus is because of bad things that happen in their lives. And so faith says that, look, I, I hold on to what I know is true because I know it's true, not because of what's going on around me. And I think that's a great thing to remind ourselves in this text today because it's easy to, when bad things happen, difficult things happen, it's easy to look around and say, what about him? Or what about her? Their lives seem so easy and so much better. And, and God, you know that's always been my dream, or that's always been what I wanted, and it's not happening for me, but it's happening for John. Why is that fair? Why is it fair that this is happening in my life, to me? And, and you feel like that spotlight, and you feel like you're just in the spotlight there, and, and, and God's saying, look, what I do with them and for them, that's my business. Let me, let me handle that. I'm God. You're not. All right? You focus in on you and what I have for your life because it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. And if you trust me and my very great and precious promises, you're going to be taken care of. My grace is sufficient for you. And so the head application, God's unique plan for you, it's not ultimately about you. It's all about the glory of Jesus. And so whether it's a really rough road that you're on or whether right now it seems very comfortable and easy, it's not for your glory. It's for Jesus and his glory. And so focus on Jesus and resist the temptation to compare yourself to others around you. Don't let your mind go there. Don't let your mind dwell on there. In fact, to love is to stop comparing. To love is to stop comparing. We love others. We truly, truly love them And when we love them, we don't have to compare ourselves to them. We look at Jesus and we say, thank you, Jesus, for the the salvation that I don't deserve, I don't earn, didn't earn. It's all you. I came to you with nothing. And you gave me this gift. And I'm going to live that way to everyone else around me. I just want to live not comparing or critiquing. I want to just give myself to everyone because you gave. I go because, Jesus, you came. I go because you came. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we are really good at comparing and critiquing and looking around and taking our eyes off you. And God, we need this encouragement. We need this reminder from Peter and from John today.
that even though their paths went in different directions, God, you were Lord and your plan was unique and special for, for them, but it was ultimately for your glory in both situations, God. And I thank you for the encouragement we have from Peter, but most importantly, we thank you for the gift of this gospel so that we can make our lives more and more about you, Jesus, that you can just take over more and more of our hearts and out of our hearts just flow just incredible holiness and righteousness and love and care and concern for others because of what you've done for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name.